Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. We're learning that the letter Paul wrote the church in Corinth shows us a better way to be God's people in this world. Thanks for joining us. As a result of poor planning, uh, a man named Dennis that lived in Katy, Texas, needed some same-day dry cleaning done before he left on a business trip, and he remembered a store that had a huge sign that said one-hour dry cleaners on it, but it was on the complete opposite side of town that he lived on. So he drove over as fast as he could, got in the store, filled out the tag, and said to the clerk, I'm going to need this in an hour. I have a flight to catch. And in response, the clerk said, oh, I'm really sorry. I can't get that back to you till next Thursday. And he said, well, I, I thought you did dry cleaning in an hour. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. That's just the name of the store. That is an example of the walk not matching the talk. They were a one-hour dry cleaner by name, but their actions didn't match what they call themselves. I tell you that story because it's a picture of what's going on in the church in Corinth. They called themselves a church. They called themselves Christians, but they looked just like the world around them. They were, were concerned with status and power and wealth and worldly wisdom. I can imagine a guest walking into the first church at Corinth and not noticing any difference between the church and the world they just left. Their match, their walk didn't match their talk. And the Apostle Paul got word of this, of what was going on. It was a church he'd planted just a few years earlier. And he sat down to write this letter to his friends. I mean, think about this. He lived with them for a year and a half. He loved these people. They were his friends. And he wrote them a letter called 1 Corinthians that we've been studying together. If you're following on your notes, Paul writes to instruct, there is a better way to live as God's people in the world. There's a better way to live. He wants them to change their minds on how they've been living. Change your minds. There was a gap between their head knowledge, what they knew, and how they acted. And how they were acting weakened the witness of the church in Corinth. We're in a series in the book of 1 Corinthians called A Better Way. And if I could paint a broad brush stroke for you of what we've learned about this church in the city of Corinth in the first four chapters, it's there are problems stemming from pride. They're puffed up. We've heard that word a number of times. They're puffed up in their worldly wisdom, and it was leading to divisions and fighting within the church. And Paul will go on to tell them in the verses we're going to look at today, there's a better way to live. And if you're following in your notes, this better way to live is the way of Jesus. It's the way of Jesus. Now, church, this is so important for us. And I'm excited to talk about this together because it affects all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus. Those of us who carry the name Christian but fail to act like the one whose name we bear, we create confusion and disillusionment for our community and for guests inside of our church and those who have yet to believe. So today we pick up 
in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. If you have a Bible with you, I love it when you take your Bible out and follow along, underline things, take notes. It would benefit you to have that on your lap. Uh, 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way back in your Bible. You're going to go through the Gospels, then you go to Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we have black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. Would love it if you'd take one of those out. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 can be found on page 926 of those black Bibles. 926. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that home with you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. So page 926. My prayer today, friends, my prayer is that we will learn the better way of Jesus and change our minds on how we might be living to line up with his way. So as we begin, would you pray with me? that God would speak to us. God, we need you. God, would you speak to us through your word? God, would you help me communicate clearly the better way of Jesus so that we might live our lives in such a way that our light shines for other people to see? We can't do it on our own. We need you. God, teach us this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said? Amen. So let's learn about this better way of Jesus. In the first gray box on your notes, would you read that with me? In verse 14, Paul begins this section of scripture by writing. Read this with me. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Right out of the gates, Paul's letting us know the better way of Jesus, if you're following your notes, does not use shame. It it doesn't use shame. If you remember, Paul loves these people. These are his friends, and he wants what's best for them, not to shame them. And the reason Paul never uses shame is because Jesus never used shame. You can look through all of the Gospels and the encounters Jesus had with people. He never used the tool of shame to get them to change their minds or behaviors, And I think the reason Paul was specific here when he used this word is because the Corinthians lived in a shame culture. This is what they did to one another. They shamed each other, and it was the tool they reached for to puff themselves up at the expense of other people. Shame is this sense that there's something wrong with me. It's an identity issue. There's something wrong with me. If you're wondering what the difference is between guilt and shame, guilt says I did something bad, and that can be healthy. Shame says I am bad, and that's not healthy. So we have a a two-year-old right now, and um, when he doesn't get his way, which is about 11 of 12 waking hours— he has started saying, like, you're a bad daddy. You're a bad Ben. You're a bad Caleb. And Sarah and I jump on that because he can say you did something bad, dad. But I don't want him attacking identity and saying you are bad. We don't want him to shame other people. So we get on that really quick. Shame is not helpful or productive. I think it's the source of destructive, hurtful behavior. But shame is a tool we often reach for to get people to do what we want them to do. And I I wonder, can, can any of you think of a time where you have been shamed? 
or a time where you have used shame to get someone else to do what you wanted them to do. I don't believe that's ever led anybody closer to Jesus. I think it's hurtful and destructive. So Paul's not writing to shame the Corinthians, but to call them to repentance, to change their minds about how they're living. So as we begin here, if we want to know how to live the better way, the way of Jesus, it's a shame-free way of relating to others. So if we're using shame to get other people to do what we want them to do, we can be sure we're not acting in the way of Jesus. And this is so important. Please hear me say this. If you hear shame, either from somebody else or in your mind, that is not the voice of Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't talk to us like that. That's the voice of our enemy shaming us. So, Paul doesn't shame the Corinthians but he does warn them. He does warn them. Verse 14 again on your notes, it says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish. The verb for admonish also means to warn. So if you're following in your notes, the better way of Jesus warns others. It warns. And warning the intent is to bring about a change of mind for their benefit, for somebody else's benefit. When we partner this warning with the understanding that Paul did not use shame to manipulate, what we learn from this is that it is possible to warn and admonish in a way that builds up rather than tears down. It's difficult, but it's possible. But I've found usually when I'm issuing a warning, it's not because I have someone else's betterment in mind, but it's because they've inconvenienced me or hurt me or taken something from me. And Paul's demonstrating a better way, not to shame, but to warn with the purpose of bringing correction and change for a better future. We can do that too. Jesus never shied away about speaking truth and warning people. He never did. But he did it for the betterment of others, not himself. Let's read verse 14 one more time together in the first gray box on your notes. I'm going to pull out one more characteristic that we see in this. Would you read that with me one more time? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. If you're following in your notes, in the better way of Jesus, the motive is love. The motive is love. Paul is writing as a father speaking with his beloved children. He's not afraid to warn them but he does it because he loves them. He wants what's best for them. This word love is agape. Maybe you've heard that before. It's the strongest kind of self-sacrificing love that's concerned with others first. It's the love of Jesus clearly demonstrated in Scripture. I want to give you three examples on the screen of this sort of love, this agape, self-sacrificing, humble love. The first one is in John 15, 13. It says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. In Romans 5, 8, the Apostle Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And the final one in 1 John 4.10, read this with me and know that when we say the word love, it's this agape self-sacrificing love. 
It says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In 1 Corinthians 14 that we're going to study later this fall, Paul says this about agape. He says, let this be the highest goal of your life. The highest goal. Self-sacrificing love. Paul disagreed with what was going on in the church in Corinth. Make no mistake about it. But he was able to disagree out of a motive of loving them. He wanted what was best for them. He wanted to know. He wanted them to know there was a better way of living than the way they currently were. The way of Jesus is shame-free. However, it does warn. It warns people they're going the wrong way. But it does so out of a motive of love. Paul goes on in verse 15. Would you read this with me in the second gray box in your notes? He says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And what we're going to see in this verse, if you're following in your notes, is the better way of Jesus is best learned in relationships. It's best learned in relationships. Paul planted this church. He led a number of people to faith in Christ. That's why he can call himself the father, their father in the gospel. And he's saying that this word guide, he used it on purpose. In some translations, it also says tutors. These were the people who walked children to school. They walked kids to school in Bible times. And Paul noticed in the church in Corinth, there were a lot of these guide-student relationships, but there was a lack of mature believers leading others in following Jesus. And I think Paul attributes some of the problems in the church with this lack of relationships. And I believe today, instead of investing in father-son or mother-daughter relationships— we have a lot of guide-to-student relationships. We, we love to listen to podcasts. I mean, we love to listen to other sermons. We watch videos. We read a ton of books. We have guides and tutors at our fingertips. Click of a mouse. But it's riskier to have a father or a mother in the faith. Listen, all those guides aren't bad. I utilize them all. I, I love them. I just don't think they're sufficient for growing in our faith. Personally, these fathers and mothers have been instrumental in helping me follow Jesus. After Sarah and I got married, God brought a couple into our lives that didn't just teach us the word of God. They were our Sunday school teachers, but they showed us what a Christ-centered marriage looked like. And we would spend hours with them. We'd go over to their house for dinner. And now that they live 500 miles away, we still spend time with them as a mother and father in our faith. And they did more than any marriage book I could have read. I didn't need another book. What I needed was an example to follow. And they provided what it looked like to have a healthy marriage that followed Jesus. Another example. Man, I think back to when I started working here at Cherry Hills and I don't say this to embarrass you, but Jeff, you didn't just recommend books about what it looked like to follow Jesus and be a pastor. You showed what it looked like to follow Jesus and be a pastor. I'm grateful for Jeff for how he treated me like a son in the faith. And in a room this size, I wonder how many other people can look at Jeff and think, yeah, he's a spiritual father to me. He's done that for so many people. So let me ask you, do you have a spiritual father or mother? 
Do you have someone who teaches you God's word, but also lives out God's word and shows you what it's like to follow Jesus? And if you're a more mature follower of Jesus, are you making yourself available to anyone else to serve as a spiritual father or mother? Is there anyone you can look at in your life and identify, I'm spending time with them, showing them and modeling for them what it looks like to follow Jesus? And this might be your kids. That might be the station in life you're in. It might be your grandkids, friends, your small group, co-workers, neighbors. But is there anywhere you are a spiritual mother or father to others who are behind you a few steps in the faith? You'll notice I've left a blank line for you on the notes. At some point today, after this service, can you fill that line in with a name? Can you fill that line in with the name of a spiritual father or mother or son or daughter? And if you can't, here's my invitation and challenge to you. Would you pray for that? Would you pray, maybe for the next 30 days, that God would bring somebody into your life that could fulfill that role? I believe this could change our church if we had these father-son, mother-daughter relationships all over the place. It could change our church for the good. And because Paul saw himself as their father, he goes on in verse 16 and he says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. So Paul's banging this drum now. He's banging this drum that uh, discipling someone is more than teaching the word of God. It's more than knowledge. It's also living the word of God out. And what we learn from Paul here, if you're following in your notes, is the better way of Jesus instructs by example. It instructs by example. Parents, have any of you heard your child say something back to you that you said, and it's like looking in a mirror? I mean, you're standing in front of a little person, and they just use the exact words you used. Anybody ever experienced that? This is probably 10 years ago now, and I'm sitting in the driveway in our car, and at the time, our two-year-old is in the seat behind me. And what I've come to learn and appreciate so much is that Sarah's always the last one out of the house, but it's because she's making sure everything is in place, right? Like she's making sure we've locked the doors, have the keys, have the tickets, has the sunglasses, we got the baby bags. We've, I mean, moms put, get all that together. So she's making sure it's all together, and we're sitting there waiting for her to come out of the house. And from the back seat, just one seat behind me, I hear a little two-year-old voice say, Come on, Sarah. <laughs> and you know, I'm not sure what's worse about that story. The fact that he said that or the fact that my first thought was, I wonder where he heard that. <laughs> and in a moment the Holy Spirit convicts me that my kids are watching me and they're listening to what I say. I can teach them and use all the words in the world I want, but if I'm going to act a certain way, they're going to model it. And Paul is beating on this drum, imitate me, imitate me, imitate me. And this is more than parent-child relationships. If you are a leader in any area of life, it is human nature that we replicate who we are. We replicate who we are. We instruct by example. And if this seems overwhelming, I'm not talking about perfection. We're not going to get this right all the time. We're going to mess up. Sometimes it'll be inside of a car, and sometimes it'll be in public. 
And when we do mess up, the best thing we can do is repent of that. We can ask God to forgive us, and we ask forgiveness from the people we've hurt, and we walk on knowing we've been forgiven. I'm confident Paul did not always get it right with the people he ministered to, and he didn't get it right with the churches he ministered to. So to bring the first four chapters of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians together right here, Paul's saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. We've heard these words in the first few months of the series, right? Be a servant. Be a steward. Be a table waiter. Be a builder. Be an under rower. Come on, don't be puffed up and proud. I didn't teach you that. And I didn't act like that. So why are you acting like that now? Practice humility. If you're following in your notes, the better way of Jesus is a posture of humility. It's a posture of humility. Paul's saying, this is what I taught you. This is what I modeled for you. And Jeff asked a question a few years ago in church, and man, it bothered me. He said, what would our church look like if everyone followed Jesus the way you follow Jesus? What would our church look like if everybody followed Jesus the way you followed Jesus? That's a humbling question. It's a humbling question. What kind of church would we be? This is such a great reminder to the high calling we've been entrusted with as followers of Jesus. Paul is saying, Look different than the world around you. It's not about wealth and wisdom and power. It's about humility. There's a better way to live as God's people in the world. And one of our prayers as leaders is that we would be a church of known for humility. It's one of our core values. The better way of Jesus is a posture of humility. So we continue on in verse 17. Paul continues this theme of imitating. If you're following in your Bible, he says, That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. This is the first mention of Timothy in the book of 1 Corinthians. Timothy had helped plant the church with Paul in Corinth, so he knows these people. Paul's sending Timothy back. And he calls him his beloved and faithful child. In other places in the Bible, he calls him his son in the faith. You can see this father-son thing going on here. It was important to Paul. And he's sending Timothy back to Corinth to remind them of the faith they had received from Paul. And Timothy, notice, was to model what that faith looked like. Imitation again. And Paul begins concluding this warning in verses 18 to 20. If you're following in your Bibles, Paul writes, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Paul wants to visit Corinth. He wants to come see his friends. And when he does visit, he wants to see how they're living, not just how they're talking. Because the kingdom of God, right here, right now, is not just fancy talk, but it's a way to be lived. Being a big talker is one thing, but living by God's power, the Holy Spirit in us, is another And Paul wants to see if their walk matches their talk. Listen, Paul wants to see if the sign says one-hour dry cleaners or not. Or if they actually provide that service. 
And Paul concludes this warning with a statement. Would you read this with me in the third gray box in your notes? Paul says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? If you're following in your notes, what we see is the better way of Jesus includes discipline. It includes discipline. The way of Jesus does not shy away from discipline because Jesus never shied away from discipline. But we need to be careful here what we impose on this word because often when I hear the word discipline, my mind goes to punishment. But we need to see, if you're following your notes, discipline is not punishment. It's not punishment. It is, the definition is to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. That's what discipline is. So discipline is so much bigger than just one thing. Discipline involves confronting someone. It involves warning someone. It involves correcting someone. It involves consequencing. I don't think that's a word, but I really like it. It involves consequencing sometimes. It involves teaching and instructing and encouraging and praying for others. Right? The root word is disciple, which is a learner. Discipline instructs in many different ways. And in his discipline, like Jesus, Paul is giving the Corinthians an option. Father Paul is saying to his kids, and again, can any parents in the room, you're either living it or you have lived it, can any parents in the room relate to this? Paul's saying, how would you like our next conversation to go? It's up to you. Option A is available, and option B is available, and it's dependent on your response. Notice, Paul didn't manage the situation and say it was okay. Everybody's doing it. It's okay, Corinthians. He, he didn't ignore it and close his eyes and say, la, 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 it's not going on. And he didn't try to overpower them. He addressed their arrogance inside of a relationship with them, but he placed the responsibility on them. Paul leaves the Corinthians with a choice, and he reveals another better way of Jesus. If you're following in your notes, the better way of Jesus allows people to make their own decisions. It allows people to make their own decisions. Jesus did not control people. And if we want to live the way of Jesus, then we have to let people choose. We can't control them. And this is so hard. And it leads to disappointment. I think this is why the most frequently used word to describe the emotional state of Jesus in the New Testament is that his insides were twisted. Because he would frequently tell people what the better way was, and they didn't want it. And they would make a bad choice. And their bad decisions certainly led to consequences, sometimes very severe consequences. So Paul leaves the choice up to the Corinthians and he says to them, shall I come with a rod or with a love in a spirit of gentleness? Just so we're all on the same page here, rod is a metaphor. Paul would not come and beat them into submission. Even the most conservative commentaries I could find say Paul does not have in mind a literal stick to beat them with, but an attitude and spirit of strong, painful discipline. So Paul's asking them, Corinthians, when I come, I love you. But is it going to be a difficult, painful conversation? Or is it going to be gentle? The choice is up to you. Paul was writing to his friends to correct and instruct, to warn and remind. 
that there is a better way to live, the better way of Jesus. He appealed to them to change their minds. But the choice was up to them, and the choice is up to us. To put all these ways of Jesus together, I'm going to invite you to flip your notes over to the back, and we've provided something we call the grace and truth matrix. We've introduced this a a number of times here, but it's a helpful tool in understanding two things. It helps us see who Jesus was like, what is the way of Jesus, and the second thing it helps us do is assess if we're becoming more like him. It's called the grace and truth matrix because in the gospel of John, we're told that Jesus himself was full of grace and truth. 100% grace, 100% truth all the time. So you'll notice the two axes are labeled grace and truth. We've talked a lot here at Cherry Hills about being people of high grace and high truth. And that's because all grace without truth, we've labeled that in the upper uh, left quadrant hangout, it produces pampering permissiveness. It never addresses sin. It never warns anybody. And this is not Jesus. Jesus never lived like that. Yet truth without grace, if you go to the bottom right quadrant, we can call that call out. It produces harsh authoritarianism that drives people away from the church and often from God. We try to strong arm people into believing what we believe or behaving the way we think they should. And this is not Jesus either. Jesus never did that. Lastly, some practice low grace and low truth. That's the lower left quadrant. We refer to that as checkout, and that's just self-preservation mode. I'm out. I don't want to deal with this anymore. I'm going to turn a blind eye to it. And Jesus never did that either. He didn't. So what Paul's done here with this matrix is he's given us a window into this grace and truth in the upper right quadrant labeled call-in. It's the only quadrant Jesus ever lived in. All the time. Paul showed the Corinthians and us a better way to live as God's people in the world. You can see the words we've looked at today fall into grace and truth, the better way of Jesus. You could add so many more descriptions to this, and here's what I'd encourage you to do. As you read through the New Testament this year uh, as a church, pay attention to where you see this grace and truth being practiced by Jesus And just write it in or underline it or make note of it. It's all over the place. Paul gives us a window into what the way of Jesus looks like, but he also gives us a mirror in which we can identify whether we're living this better way of Jesus. So when I look at this, I can ask questions like, am I growing into the likeness of Christ or do I practice more truth than grace? Do I, do I just get on people? Do I call them out? Do I find myself trying to start strong arm people? Or we can look at this mirror and ask, am I more grace than truth? Am I upper left? Do I just kind of hang out? And I never want to warn or discipline. I, I just want to make everything okay so nobody feels uncomfortable. This is where passive aggressive behavior would come in. Just trying to manipulate the situation by being passive aggressive. Or can you identify with the lower left of checking out? It's not worth it. They'll never change. I give up. As you're beginning, I'm sure you already have some ideas in your mind of where you see these tendencies or temptations take place in your life. But as I look in this mirror, 
I notice a temptation in my life. As a dad right now with littles, um, it is my temptation to call my kids out because it's easier to yell across the room and get my kids to do what I want them to do than engaging their hearts. I have a temptation to be more interested in behavior modification than I am about their future betterment. When I warn them, I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it so they stop inconveniencing me. I've also noticed the temptation in friendships that I have or small group or or discipling people. There's a temptation to hang out because it's difficult for me to challenge because I've always thought that challenging or warning somebody wasn't loving them. And I'm learning that's not true. It has to be done the right way, but it's okay to challenge or warn. These are things I'm learning as I use this as a mirror. And I want to ask you, would you turn your notes back over to the note side of your page? And I want to leave you with a question. And I ask myself this question. Is there any area of your life where you need to change your mind and live the better way of Jesus? Is there any area of your life where you need to change your mind and live the better way of Jesus? And let me say this to you. If you're sitting here and you're convicted that you do struggle with this and you've just noticed there's a gap between the way Jesus lived and the way I'm currently living, please notice, right? Jesus is 100% grace, 100% truth. He's upper right. He never used shame. So if you're hearing shame right now, or you're feeling beat up right now, that's not the voice of Jesus. He will encourage and challenge, but he's not going to shame you. And if you think this is impossible, you would be right. It is impossible to live the better way of Jesus on our own. But the the really great news is when you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We just don't use the mind of Christ that we do have. And so I'm continually reminded in my own power, I can't do this. I need Jesus every day, every hour, every decision, every conversation, and I notice when I don't ask Jesus to guide me and help me, things don't go as well. And I usually make a bad choice. It is possible to live the better way of Jesus, but we have to ask him. He will help us. And if we live this way, here's the promise I'll leave you with. If we live this better way of Jesus, it will look so distinct to the world around us that people will notice and we might have an opportunity to share why we're different. And it's because Jesus has a better way. Jesus has a better way. So let me pray for us and the team's gonna come forward. God, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for leaving us with this meal, communion, where we can remember who you are and who we are in you. God, we are a grateful people that pause now to remember. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website 
at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.